We are looking at salvation history, trying to trace God's saving work through this larger story of the Bible. We saw creation and fall and how the Bible develops around a problem. It's not just that we do bad things, it's that we are separated from God. That we try to be our own God. Last week, we saw God launching his plan to bless the world and to save the world through this man, Abraham, who was childless at 75 years old, yet God promised would be a father of a great nation. We trace the beginning of his family through Isaac, through Jacob, and then through his 12 sons. Now we pick up the story again. In order to survive a famine, the family follows Joseph into Egypt. There they continue their God-given command of being fruitful and multiplying. Okay, They have lots of kids. And the kids have kids. But for a few generations, we've got a big family. But the problem starts in the book of Exodus when uh, a pharaoh comes to power that the text says doesn't know the story of Joseph. Okay, he doesn't know the backstory. He doesn't know of Joseph's saving of Egypt. He doesn't know why this growing people are in the midst of them in Egypt. And he feels threatened by this growing number of people. These people that are now a very, very big tribe, slowly becoming a set of tribes, almost a nation. So to keep this family at bay, he presses them into forced service, abuses them, and even kills all their male children so that they cannot multiply. Now, if you're following along in the story of the Bible from beginning to end, you automatically see some problems with this. What do you mean God's chosen people are, are in slavery? Okay, God told these people to be fruitful and multiply, and now Pharaoh's telling them that they can't be fruitful and multiply. How can Pharaoh stop what God has done? Is God okay with this? Are the gods okay with this? I thought this family was meant to be a blessing and to be blessed. How blessed are you if you're in slavery? But God has not forgotten his people or his promises. The passage that was just read is part of a speech Moses gives at his death. He calls on the people to remember what God did in Egypt and all the things that he did in the wilderness uh, for their 40 years that they wandered there. And so let's do that a little bit today. This man, Moses, is not a likely candidate for to be God's spokesperson and the people's leader. Very interesting. If you read the Bible, one of the themes of the Bible is that the unlikely people are often the people God calls to do the things he wants to have done. Okay. Of all the disciples, there's only one that's really ambitious, that really has a lot of business sense to him. And it's Judas Iscariot. All the other ones don't seem to know what they're doing, don't seem to have a lot of courage. And Moses is the same way. Moses is spared from the, uh, the slaughter of the Pharaoh by being put in a basket and floated down the Nile. And then, even though he's Israelite, he grows up in the house of Pharaoh. If you remember your story, he actually, when he gets older, finds out who he is. Um, and, uh, or, or maybe knew the whole time. But he sees a, a, slave, a slave being beaten by one of the Egyptians. And he ends up killing that man. And hiding the body, at least he thinks he hides the body. But he finds out that people know. And he runs away. He runs into the wilderness and spends about 40 years there uh, by himself. He gets married. He learns how to take care of sheep. 
not knowing that he's actually preparing for his work. Like he thinks he's in exile. He thinks he's gone. But actually, you know what he's doing when he's out there in the wilderness? Learning how to keep things alive in the wilderness. Learning where the water spots are. Learning how to keep these sheep going. Learning what it takes to survive out there. Finally, he is stopped when he sees a bush that is burning but seems to not be consumed by the fire. We call it the burning bush, but in some ways it's really the not burning bush. Okay, It's on fire, but it's not actually being consumed. Voice calls him to go back to Pharaoh. He does, but Pharaoh will not let them go. So he has to bring about these ten plagues, the final of which is the Passover, which we're going to be exploring at this Seder next week. Finally, Pharaoh relents and he lets the people go. The Bible tells us that by now it has been 430 years since Israel has gone into Egypt. So there is nobody even alive among the Israelites who has ever seen the promised land. Okay, when they say promised land, it's a fantasy land. Okay, they've never seen it. They have never been to it. They have only known what they see. This is an amazing moment for Israel. It's the defining moment for them to be saved, to, to exodus slavery, to go out into freedom. Yes, God's promises are good. We are God's chosen people. But you can imagine how hard that would be for the first generation of people. Like if we were God's chosen people, why were we there in the first place? Okay. Why, why are we wandering around the desert and whenever, they, whenever the things get hard, whenever the desert gets difficult, the people start to look back longingly at the slavery that they had in Egypt. Okay? It's a bunch of times in the text. They say to Moses, hey, at least we had water back in Egypt. Okay? At least, at least you know, we had food back in Egypt. At least we, we had a place to stay back in Egypt. I wonder if Moses ever wanted to shake them. You were slaves back there. You know that, right? Like, you, isn't it funny how we remember the good parts of the past sometimes and kind of leave out? When we long for the past, very often we long for the best parts of it and we just sort of blank on the stuff that we didn't like. So because they doubt God's ability to take care of them, especially when the spies go into the land, uh, God decides they're going to have to wander around in the desert. They're going to wait, and it's going to be the next generation that gets to go into the promised land. We might wonder why. Is it just a punishment, or what's going on? The prophet Isaiah, writing much later, and in the face of the later exile, looks back at the exodus and the time in the wilderness to try to understand God's, God's larger plan. Let me read from two passages. First from Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, behold, this is God speaking, I will allure her, that's Israel, and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So here's metaphor number one for, uh, for Hosea, that God is wooing. He is alluring Israel. Okay? He's basically in the wilderness taking Israel on a date. That's the metaphor. Okay? I'm going to help Israel to fall in love with me in a way they have not fallen in love with me before. 
So the wilderness is like a big date so that Israel will fall in love with God again. Then in Hosea 11, he uses a different metaphor. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burnt offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I came to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws. I bent down to them and fed them. So two more metaphors from Hosea. First, the idea that Israel is like a child. And I took the child up in my arms. I cared for them. I taught Israel how to walk. That that's what they were doing in the wilderness. And then as one who eases the yoke of their jaws. That God is like, God is going to them like a, like a donkey or like an ox. And freeing them and teaching them how to live again. Not as a beast of burden, but as people this time. And so it's said that it took Moses 40 days to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. Let me say that again. It took 40 days to get Israel out of Egypt, right? Plagues, all that stuff. But it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. It took 40 years to teach them how to not be in Egypt anymore. That is the wilderness. It is God's school of teaching them how to follow, how to be loved by him. How often do we get in times of wilderness in our lives and we don't see it as God teaching us and God caring for us and God loving us? We see it as God abandoning us. When really sometimes God has to take us through the wilderness so we learn to love and to care. In Exodus, God does this in a number of ways in the wilderness. First of all, God physically leads them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They can actually see the spirit of God ahead of them. You can imagine what that would do to you psychologically. How many of you would just wish God would sometimes send you an email? So you just knew exactly what God was wanting. Then when they would wake up every day, there would be this bready kind of substance on the ground. They called it manna, which is really funny in Hebrew because manna literally means, what is it? It's a question. Does somebody went out that day that they got the first manna and they were like, man, what is it? Manna. Yep, let's call it that. It wasn't bread. It was some kind of a gooey substance and, and they could only keep it for the day. If, it, if they tried to keep it for the next day, it would go sour. It would, it would soil and go. it would be really gross, except for Fridays when God would provide them enough for the next day so they didn't have to work and collect it on the Sabbath. So they got there. What is it? And God taught them every day to, to daily wait on God for their provisions. And then when they got tired of manna, he gave them quail. And the quail would come out. And, and we're not sure. The, the Hebrew is really weird whether the quail would, would just fly around the camp. Or whether they would kind of sit outside of the camp. But either way, they could go out and get all the quail they want. To the point where they got tired of quail. But God provided for them. When they didn't have water, Moses took his staff and he struck a rock and water came out for them. Moses would often leave the camp and go up to the mountain, particularly Mount Sinai, to meet with God. 
There he was given instructions on how to build a tabernacle, sort of a mobile temple. Mobile temple. He was given instructions about worship and sacrifices. He's given laws to teach these people how to live. What's he doing? God is training up these people in following him. This is how you get right with God. This is how you make your sacrifices. This is how you worship. This is what you eat. God is training them. When Moses would come down off the mountain, one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, it it says that Moses' face would be shiny from being around the presence of God. And it was so shiny from being around the glory of God that it would freak the Israelites out. So the Bible says Moses, when he'd come down from the mountain for a long time, he'd have to wear a veil so that people couldn't see his face directly. At one point, the people are plagued with venomous snakes because they cry out against God. And God instructs Moses to take a bronze snake and put it on a pole and lift it up in the middle of the camp so that if anyone was bitten by one of these snakes, they could go to the camp, they could uh, see the snake up on this uh, statue of this snake on a pole, and they would go and they would be healed. Uh, To this day, the symbol of first aid is a staff with a serpent on it coming from this story. So Moses leads them and teaches them for 40 years. But we got to also say that he had his moments of doubts and his moments of question. And when they finally get to the promised land, it's not Moses that gets to lead them in. It's Joshua. But Moses, before being taken up to heaven, tells the people to remember all that God had done for them and to keep living into it. As we think about this Exodus epic in the salvation history, we, we learn something very important about understanding this whole story in the Bible. And that is, we know from this side of Easter that Jesus is central to this story. So whenever we read a story in the Bible, we're always looking through the Jesus lens. Okay, we're always looking to see where is Jesus either showing up in this story or foreshadowed in this story. Or where do we see that we need Jesus in this story? And in the Moses story... The Exodus story may be represented more in the Jesus story than any other Old Testament story. In John chapter 1, the Logos, or the Word of God, became flesh, and the phrase is, He dwelt among us. But the Greek word there for dwelt is the word that the the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, also translates tabernacle. Literally says God tabernacles among us in Jesus. In Matthew, Jesus is saved from an evil ruler who is killing all the male-born children and then is sent to Egypt and then called back. So in some ways, in Matthew, Jesus is reliving this Exodus story. Then when Jesus returns, where does he often do his teaching? On mountaintops. A sermon on the mount. And often he's saying, I give you a new commandment. Then later in Matthew, Jesus is transfigured in front of his disciples, or a few of his disciples. In other words, they see him in all his glory. And they try to describe it as he's like shiny, he's like glittery. We don't know how to, he's sparkly. I don't know how to describe when they can actually see Jesus in his full glory. In the Gospel of Matthew, he's joined by two figures. Elijah and who? Moses. Moses, who had the shiny face just reflecting God's glory. But here's Jesus, who actually has God's glory. In John 3, 14, you all know John 3, 
16, but in John 3, 14, Jesus uses the serpent in the wilderness to talk about himself on the cross. He says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So Jesus says, I'm going to be that serpent. I'm going to be lifted up. He's talking about the cross. And those that look upon me will be healed just like those in the desert. Just as Israel got manna in the desert, so Jesus in the New Testament is the bread of life. Listen to how Jesus uses this manna story to describe himself in John 6. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. See that? Jesus looks back at that manna story and said, you know how God provided the bread? Well, I'm the real bread. I'm the real bread that's actually going to sustain you from now on. And Jesus is the living water. Paul goes so far as to say in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, that Jesus is the rock from which Israel got water. So the gospel writers, so Paul, Jesus himself, are all looking back at this story and saying, look at how much of Jesus's life is foreshadowed in these stories. And like the rest of the Bible, it not only points to Jesus, but it also points to our story. Where are you a slave in your life? Where do you feel stuck? Where do you feel trapped? Where do you feel more like a beast of burden than a person? Where are you in the wilderness? Where does your heart feel dry? Where are those places where maybe God is wooing you? God is teaching you how to walk, but you you can't quite receive it because you can only feel what you're feeling in the particular moment. Where are you choosing to go back to slavery instead of living into God's freedom? Where is Jesus feeding you bread, but you want something else? Where are you sick or dying, but instead of looking to the cross, you're looking to everything else? What if you spent so much time close to God that people started to see his glory shining in your face? See, we read Jesus into these stories, but we also need to read ourselves into these stories. So may we all find our own exodus in Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.